On August 15, 1992, an elderly man was resting in his home in Padua, Italy, when he was suddenly beset by a heart attack, one so massive that his family was not even able to rush him to the hospital before he passed away. He was a man that had lived in relative quiet for the past 43 years of his life, raising a family and working a job like any other regular person on the planet. No one would have known just by looking at him that he was a man who had fought two wars, saw regimes rise and crumble firsthand. A man who knew hunger and imprisonment and bone-deep fear. A man that had saved over 5,000 Jews from deportation from the Hungarian capital of Budapest during World War II. For those that did know, he went by many names. The Spanish Schindler, the Italian Wallenberg, righteous among the nations. But before all that, he was Giorgio Prolaska. I'm not here for the grand schemes, and now neither are you. Long history very short, I'm Alana, and this is Little Slights, where I discuss the men who lived and died in the shadows cast by history's limelight. Let's talk about the great imposter. Giorgio Perlasca was born in Como, Italy on January 31, 1910, one of six children. The family moved to Padua when Giorgio was only a few months old, as his father, who worked for the Italian government as a municipal secretary, was transferred there. He was raised in the Catholic faith and taught to believe that all men were pretty much equal. In Giorgio's own recollections, there was nothing remarkable about his upbringing. But in the background of his normal, everyday childhood, the Italian government and society was undergoing massive changes that would erupt in the 1920s. Benito Mussolini and his fascist movement had been steadily growing throughout the 1910s, sweeping up those eager for change in an overpopulated Italy disillusioned with the ideas of socialism. Giorgio Prolasco was one of those carried away in that tide, and as he passed his teenage years into adulthood, his interest in fascism became outright fervent support. He enlisted in the Italian army at 25 and spent two and a half years in service, first as a volunteer in the 1935 Second Italo-Abyssina War in East Africa, and then as a member of the Corpo Truppa Volontaire, an Italian fascist expeditionary force that reported directly to the nationalist general Francisco Franco in the Spanish Civil War, which started in 1936. Franco and his nationalists would win that war against the Spanish Republic and establish a dictatorship in Spain. Perlasca comported himself well during his time in Spain, enough to receive commendations from Franco himself, but instead of building up his confidence in the ideology he was following, the war had shaken Giorgio down to his foundations. He deeply disliked and mistrusted the alliance that Mussolini had established with Nazi Germany, who fought by their side in the Civil War, and he was incredibly wary of the xenophobic and anti-Semitic racial laws that Italy had decided to enforce under Mussolini's rule. The influence the National Socialist Party of Germany had over Italian policy was too much for Giorgio to swallow. A law that prohibited Italian citizens from taking office or publishing books because of their religion or heritage? That nearly choked Perlaska. So it wasn't so much an abandonment of fascism on Giorgio's part as it was a complete lack of reason to support it. As he himself would later say, I was neither fascist nor anti-fascist. I was anti-Nazi. Perlaska now placed his loyalty in the king of Italy, Emmanuel II. When he came back to Italy in 1938, Giorgio found employment in a trade firm headquartered in Rome. It specialized in importing food to Italy, and his became a fairly important job as the war drew closer. Nobody needs food like an army, after all. 
His job saw Giorgio making regular rounds of Europe, and as 1938 passed to 1939 and on to 1940, what he saw worried him more and more. World War II, in the beginning, didn't affect Perlaska personally. His job was too important to the Italian army for them to interfere with him, and it gave him an official status in the country that made him pretty much untouchable. Moreover, Perlaska himself wasn't particularly interested in getting involved. He hated the Italian race laws, but even though there had been a lot of migration of the Italian Jews when they were originally implemented, most of his Jewish friends still lived relatively free in Rome up to 1940. But in June of that year, he was sent across the continent and overseas to do business. In his travels, he saw the international situation regarding the Jewish populations getting worse and worse, which only intensified after the invasion of Poland. Prolaska would later recall thinking that 1940 Romania was worse than Germany itself. He saw Bulgaria align itself with Nazi Germany, only to watch later as the Tsar, Boris III, scrambled to save his Jewish population being persecuted under Nazi law. For many of them, Boris failed. The situation in many places, Italy and Hungary, wasn't that bad. Giorgio could go out dancing and dining with his Jewish friends without a care in the world. This was almost an entirely different world from the likes of Belgrade, the capital of Serbia. Prolaska lived there for a year while he was working for his trade firm. In that time, Germany had invaded and occupied Yugoslavia and Serbia, and the damage they had wrought was enormous. By the end of 1942, Giorgio would later say there were no more Jews left in Belgrade. At the end of the war, it was estimated that the Germans had systematically wiped out 18,000 Serbian Jews and countless Romani people. He was next assigned to Budapest, and was likely happy to get away from the madness. Hungary was a member of the Axis powers, as it had heavily relied on Italy and Germany to help it survive the Great Depression. But, as mentioned before, the situation on the streets there wasn't nearly as dire as it had been the other places Perlaska had been stationed. The war had suited Hungary well at first, as they adopted Germany's policy of claiming lands in other countries inhabited by their people as their own, and aided in the invasion of Yugoslavia. But the friendship, such as it was, could not last. As early as 1942, Hungary's prime minister was attempting to foster peace talks with the United States and their allies, and Berlin was growing increasingly suspicious of the Hungarian government. This was all very survivable for Prolaska. After all, he'd now lived through the fall of several countries. But there was another matter happening, hundreds of miles away and yet much closer to home, that was about to change the trajectory of his entire life. In September of 1943, Italy signed an armistice with the Allied powers. Specifically, it was signed by King Emmanuel and his prime minister. Germany responded in force, throwing support behind Benito Mussolini and attacking southern Italy. In the meantime, they ordered all the Italians in Hungary to return home. Giorgio Perlaska refused. He would not return to his sad little puppet kingdom of a home, and he would not support Benito Mussolini's return to power. Still, he could not remain as he was, an Italian businessman in Budapest. He feared that because he had done trade agreements with some Germans previously, they would recognize him if they saw him and arrest him on the spot. And he was right. Though he had left his house and hid, first with friends, then friends of friends, he was soon found and arrested. He was taken to a castle where they were interning diplomats from foreign countries and held there for the next several months. Internment wasn't a horrible experience for Prolaska, but he was cut off from the outside world. The newspapers they provided were censored, when they were provided at all. 
Frustrated and paranoid of what might happen if he stuck around, Prolaska decided to break himself out. His plan to do so would become his tried and true method of saving not only himself, but thousands of Jewish people. Falsifying papers. Prolaska obtained a medical pass that got him out of the facility and, as soon as he was free, he made his way to the Spanish embassy. There, he presented a certificate that was not fake at all, proof that he had fought in the Spanish Civil War. Doing so meant that he was entitled to Spanish protection if he so chose. And now, he chose. It was the only way he could stay safe and stay in Budapest. Gone was Giorgio, Italian businessman, and in his place was George, Spanish diplomat. Well, now what? As I mentioned before, the Hungarians had been unsure of the Germans for quite some time. The pressure from Soviet forces to the east was enormous, and by 1943, Hungary had suffered a huge defeat when the Red Army punched through the Romanian forces at the Don River to decimate the Second Hungarian Army. For recompense of this defeat, Adolf Hitler demanded Hungary punish its Jewish population, and they duly handed over 10,000 Jews for hard labor. The persecution of the Jews in Hungary was mounting every day. Admiral Miklos Horty, crown regent of Hungary, began to look to the Allies instead sure now that they would be the ones to win the war. The Germans soon found out about Horty's backroom deals, and Hitler was enraged. On March 19, 1944, German army police arrested Horty, after which the Nazis made him take apart his government and replace it with one of their own. The effect was instantaneous. Jewish people, already in danger of deportation to labor and death camps, were now forced to wear the Star of David in public, making them open targets. Giorgio Perlasca, making his way to the Spanish embassy, saw a young boy that couldn't have been more than seven shot in the back of the head as he was fleeing. When he asked someone nearby why the boy was shot, the stranger replied, oh, he was a Jew. Only a few days after Perlasca had made it to the Spanish embassy, Horty, encouraged by the Romanians turning on the Axis, called for an armistice with the Soviet Union. Perlasca recalled a few brief days when everything seemed to go back to normal. He lunched with Jewish friends freely, but he remembered the woman he dined with being quite fearful of what was coming. Her instincts were right. The Germans responded to Horty's armistice by abducting his son and blackmailing Horty into signing over power to the leader of a Hungarian fascist party, the Arrow Cross. Ferenc Zalazi would see the deportation of over 440,000 Jews and Romani from Hungarian lands. All those that remained, around 200,000 Jews, were quickly rounded up in Budapest. When Perlaska finally arrived at the embassy, he saw Jewish people by the hundreds seeking escape from the new fascist regime. There was only one person there to handle the workload, a man named Angel Sanspriz, later known as the Angel of Budapest, who honestly deserves an episode of his own someday. Sanspriz was in a panic that day Perlaska came to him. 300 Jews set for immigration to neutral or friendly states had gone missing, and no one could find them. Well, Perlaska said, maybe I can. When I was reading this part of his story, I wondered if Perlaska really knew what he was taking on. Listening to an interview from Perlaska himself, he made it sound like it was the only thing to do, to help those men and those people. As he said when asked why he helps, I couldn't stand the sight of people being branded like animals. I couldn't stand seeing children being killed. I did what I had to do. As far as I was concerned, I was sure of the rightness of what I was doing. Sanspariz welcomed the help, and Perlaska was sent to collect the missing Jews. Some he located at the Hungarian-German border and took them immediately back to Budapest. But that was barely a quarter of those missing. Where were the rest? Ah, of course it hit him. 
the train station. Prolaska met with Swedish diplomat Raoul Wallenberg, and they set out together with a guard and official flags to see who they could find. Well, they found the missing Jews all right, about half of the 300 missing, lined up and ready for deportation. While the diplomats argued to get the Jews back under their protection, Prolaska noticed two young children. Twins, he thought. A boy and a girl. Very pretty. He then felt a horrible premonition of what would happen to these children if the Germans got a hold of them. In a sudden burst of rage and guts, he leapt forward, grabbed the twins by their collars, and threw them into the car, ordering the men guarding them to shut the door and not open it for anybody but himself. Instantly, the Germans erupted, pointing their guns at Prolaska and the car and demanding the children back. Prolaska refused. This car is foreign territory, he said, because it was a diplomat's vehicle. If you try to do anything to it or the people inside, you'll be starting an international instant. A German officer, obviously one of high command, tried to argue. You're interrupting my work, he spat. Prolaska was disgusted. You call this work? After more arguing, the officer let them go, telling his soldiers that in the end, it didn't matter. The Jewish people would all die eventually. When Prolaska returned to the car, Wallenberg asked him if he knew who he had been arguing with. Prolaska said no. That was Adolf Eichmann, Wallenberg said, one of the architects of the Holocaust. It would not be the last time Prolaska and Wallenberg wrestled Jewish people out of Nazi hands at that train station. They never located the 100 or so Jewish people still missing from the 300 taken from the embassy. When they returned, Prolaska found the twins, both boys after all, a house to stay in. The Jewish Protection Organization, which he had joined the moment he decided to help, only had one house at the time. Prolaska and Sanspreeze quickly realized they would need many more and worked on expanding their network. To do that, they collaborated with other embassies, including the Swiss, the Swedes, and the Vatican. One house quickly grew to six. Food, utilities, protection details, everything had to be accounted for. But simply housing the Jews wasn't enough. If Prolaska and his men took a Jewish person from Nazi custody, they had to make sure the Nazis couldn't take them back. For that, they turned to Prolaska's old friend, falsifying papers. They already had a pretty solid method thus far. Fake protection cards that would place Jews under the guardianship of neutral states. Prolaska and Sanspreeze, working in the name of Spain, exploited an old law from 1924 that decreed any Jewish descendant of those that had been expelled from Spain in 1492 had the right to citizenship. Essentially, Prolaska would do what had been done for him. Make someone Spanish and therefore make them untouchable. The letters of protection read, This family has requested permission to move to Spain. While awaiting departure, they are under the protection of the Spanish government. Prolaska issued thousands of them, nearly 2,000 in October alone. He later said that Sanspreeze wasn't even aware of how many they were issuing, as they were using his stamp pad as a signature. It was a good thing they had it, too, because Sanspreeze was about to flee the city. The man didn't necessarily have a choice. The Red Army was rapidly approaching Hungary's borders, closing in on Budapest, and Switzerland wanted to pull its people out. Sanspreeze had to follow orders and departed the city in November of 1944. Prolaska would later recall Sanspreeze calling him late at night, offering the Italian the chance to go with him, but he turned him down. The next day, Sanspreeze was gone. Prolaska respected Sanspreeze, and seemed to dislike when, later on in life, his own legacy would occasionally overshadow all the good work Sanspreeze had done before he had even gotten there. But Sanspreeze had been a diplomat in the end, 
never visiting the houses or going out on the streets. Nor did he seem to understand that it wasn't just the Jewish people at risk. Since Breeze hadn't seen what Perlaska had seen. He hadn't seen the deportation of the Poles. He hadn't heard the streets of Romania go quiet as the Romani musicians were rounded up in 1942. Perlaska had, and he would not let it happen again. With Sansbury's gone, though, who was left that had the authority to back up Spanish threats? The Germans were already stirring in Sansbury's absence. In late November, Perlaska witnessed the army police storm a house that was under Spanish protection, ready to take all the Jewish people out and deport them. He swiftly followed the police inside and, once informed of what they were doing, locked the door so that no one could get out. When the police chief tried to confront him, Perlaska informed him that the house was under Spanish protection. The police chief refuted him. Since Breeze was gone, there was no Spanish protection. Of course there is, Perlaska said. I'm his replacement. And Hungary has to honor our agreement. Perlaska didn't understand it at the time, but Spain still had an incredible amount of power in Hungary, as the Hungarian delegation in Madrid was still loyal to Horty, and by late 1944, the Spanish embassy was one of the last functioning in Budapest. The police chief, therefore, unsure and unwilling to risk it, backed down. Later, the Hungarian foreign affairs minister, aware of who Perlaska was, signed off on papers certifying him as new charge d'affaires in Sansbris' absence. Perlaska was now the man in charge. He dated Sansbris's signature pad back to November 18th, before the man had fled, and kept forging papers. But as November froze over to December, Perlaska would realize that his hardest battles were yet to come. The Red Army was on their borders, and Nazis and fascists roamed the streets. The situation for the Jewish people in his houses and elsewhere would only grow more precarious as the larger war going on outside Hungary began to reach its final, terrible climax. Next week, in part two of our deep dive into the life of Giorgio Perlaska, we'll discuss December 1944 in Budapest and beyond, what he saw, what he did, and what came after.